He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even so we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's blessing and direction on our study of the word. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. For there there is so much that we would not know, not understand, not comprehend if you had not revealed it to us. And as we study this section of Ephesians, we are reminded that we would not know what church was, why we are here, what we are doing, if it were not for this important section of Scripture. It gives us our identity, helps us to understand what you mean when you say that we are your masterpiece. We are a work of art, uh, a much more robust concept than simply um, your craftsmanship that we are a work of art, that there is a special purpose for each and every one of us, and it informs us of our new identity as new creatures in Christ. Now, Father, as we continue our study today, help us to see the things that we need to see, understand more about the nature of this new organism called the church and our role in it and why it is so significant in history. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and we are continuing our study in Ephesians. We are focusing in these chapters on the church, for this is one of the most significant passages, one of the most vital passages for understanding what God was doing in creating this new organism that is introduced to us as a work of art or a masterpiece in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And so I want to remind us just where we are in this particular epistle. There are three sections to Ephesians. The first focuses on what Christ has provided for us. The riches is how it's normally translated, but this is the wealth that we have in Christ. We are wealthy beyond our greatest imagination because of all that God has given us. And so chapters 1 through 3 talk about who we are and what we have in Christ, our wealth in Christ. And then on the basis of that wealth, we are to live, and that's described by the metaphor of walking in the Scripture. And so Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 down through chapter 6 verse 9 focuses on 
the walk of the believer, how we are to live in light of our possessions, that how we are to live in light of our wealth. And then it shifts because as we live our life, it is a, it is a struggle at times. We live in the devil's world. There is a warfare that surrounds us, a, a cosmic warfare that uh, takes place and originated in the heavenlies. And we are a vital part of that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in this church age. We are living in a period of great intensity and significance in the global or cosmic history of God's grace, his demonstration of his grace, and that all started with the satanic fall. So we have this significant role in this uh, incredible, invisible, angelic conflict, at least invisible in this church age. So we have to learn about our our warfare and the role of, of the church in it. So we have seen at the conclusion of the first section of this chapter that we are his, that is God's workmanship, his craftsmanship as it's translated in some places, but it is more than that. This is a word that indicates something glorious and magnificent. We are a work of art. As new creatures in Christ, we are God's masterpiece. We individually and we collectively, corporately as the church, no other people of God in history have the uh, appellations, have the names that we are given. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ, and this elevates us to a position that is far beyond anything experienced by any other believer in human history. Our opening passage of this section is these three verses from Ephesians 2.11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, this is the focal point of these three verses, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that introduces the topic. And so we have begun to uh, just give an introduction and overview in understanding what the Bible teaches about the church, the body of Christ. And in our previous lesson, which I focused on uh, this last time, we focused on what Jesus said in Matthew 16:18 when he made the statement, I will build my church. That is the focal point of last week's lesson, but we have to under we have to build on that. So I just want to review you a little bit about uh what took place here. The first point I made last week in talking about what the Bible teaches of the church is what is brought out in this particular passage and the use of the term ecclesia or church in Matthew 20, uh, or excuse me, Matthew 16, 18. Matthew 16, 18, at the center of this statement, Jesus said, 
I will build my church. Five words in the English, although there are only four words in the Greek. The Greek pulls out a little bit of a different emphasis, but all are present there where Jesus is saying, I will build my church. That is his focal point. And what's interesting is if you take a look at each of these words that we bring uh, that we translate it with in English has a different significance. You can say it five different ways with five different emphases. I will build my church. 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 And each of those brings out another significant and vital point. The I tells us that it is Jesus who performs the action. The verb is a future active uh, indicative. It is something that he will do in the future, but he will do it. And he is the one who builds it. If Jesus builds it. It is not the pastor who builds it. It's not the board of elders or board of deacons. It is not any human group that builds it. And the work that is done is God's work, and it must be done God's way. How a church is built must also be God's way. Methodology is just as important. In other words, how we do what we do is just as important as what we do. We always have to remember something. Hopefully your mother taught you. This is Mother's Day. We'll mention mothers a couple of times. That Hopefully your mother taught you that a right thing had to be done the right way. A right thing done the wrong way is still wrong. A wrong thing done the right way is wrong. Only a right thing done the right way is is right. And so often this little truism is ignored in theology and in the practice of theology. We have a lot of people who have orthodoxy. They teach the right thing, but they are they do not have orthopraxy. That is, they do not practice the right thing. They use the world's methods in order to accomplish God's ends. And so this is true for too many churches. Instead of allowing Christ to build the church his way, They use human viewpoint techniques. And when I was ordained, I was reminded that that God's work must be done God's way. And there are a lot of large churches. There are a lot of enormous uh, ministries. There are a lot of what appear to be successful ministries. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit had anything to do with them. And usually that is pretty evident. And so we have to be sure that we do God's work God's way. And Jesus Christ is the one who said, I will build my church. And he told pastors that you were to feed the sheep. And too often it is pastors trying to build the the church, and they just assume somehow the, the, uh, the, the sheep can find some food somewhere. So the I emphasizes Christ is the one who builds the church. And he says, I will. The will emphasizes the future. The will emphasizes the that the church was not yet in existence. The will, as future tense, indicates that Christ in the future would build this organism, and it was not yet here. In the Old Testament, the people of God were the Jews under the Abrahamic covenant. 
But in the New Testament, there is a shift to a new people of God. God has shifted his focus on his plan, uh, which was not announced in the Old Testament at all. And that's why it's called a mystery, a previously unrevealed truth. And so now he is building this second entity, this second organism called uh, called the church. God's people, the Jews, are still his people. His promises are still in effect, and they will still be fulfilled. Uh, God still has a plan and a purpose for his people, Israel, and they are not to be minimized, and they were not replaced by the church. That is the source of much anti-Semitism and much that is shameful in the history of Christianity. Third, Jesus said, I will build my church. He is the one who will construct it. It is a process. It takes time. And the church is still being built today. It is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is the uh, teaching that is preserved in the Word of God, specifically in the New Testament. Fourth, he says, it's my church. It is his body that is being built. He is the head. He is the authority over the church. We in the church are called Christ's own special possession and treasure. We have been created in Christ Jesus and given new life in Christ Jesus. And so we are his church. We are not uh, Robbie Dean's church. We're not Andy Wood's church. We're not David Dunn's church. You know, we are not Andy Stanley's church or Charles Stanley's church or somebody else's church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are his church. And this, the last thing he says is, I will build my church. And this refers to a new distinctive people of God, a new assembly comprised of all believers since the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, all believers, whether they are alive today or whether they have already been promoted to be with the Lord. Now, we came to this point last last week, to this conclusion, and stopped here, and I want to take some time to talk about the word church. What is the church? What does this mean? This is our second point. Second point is that the Greek word that is translated church is this word ekklesia. Ekklesia, and it means, or is usually translated as an assembly of people, as a meeting of people, as the church. It's used 114 times in the New Testament. That tells us that it has some significance because of the number of times the word appears. In the Septuagint, that's the LXX there, which is a Roman numeral for 70, uh, the uh, tradition is that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Pentateuch from Hebrew into uh, Greek around uh, 250 to 300 B.C. So it is referred to as the work of the 70 or the, the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, it is... Uh, translated the, for the assembly or the congregation of Israel as the people of Israel assembled together. And it is not to be translated as the church, and I'll tell you, show you why in just a minute. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, this word is only used two times, both of which are in Matthew. It's used here in Matthew 
or it's used once in the passage we just talked about in Matthew 16, 18, which refers to a future church, something Jesus would build in the future. It is used again in Matthew chapter 18, but there it refers to a probably the meeting of a synagogue, the word that is translated as ecclesia in the Old Testament uh, was often used as a word that was often used in uh, as a parallel for the word uh, synagogue or synagogue. And in Matthew eighteen seventeen, this is a discipline passage where Jesus says, if he refuses, if somebody refuses to listen to the one person who tells him in private about a problem, if he listens to the two people who come where there's a witness then tell it to the assembly. Well, there was no church at that time, so it shouldn't be translated, tell it to the church. It should be translated, tell it to the assembly, and the only assembly at that time was the synagogue. So that passage has nothing to do with the church. Only Matthew 16 has to do with the, has to do with the church, that is the body of Christ, as a future entity. Now, when we look at a word like ecclesia, there are some times when you will hear some false information or erroneous information about this word. It is a compound word from the Greek word, our preposition ek, which means out of, and klesia, which comes from uh, the Greek verb kaleo, to call. And so you'll hear people say, well, this means the called out ones. And so the church should be identified as the called out out ones. Well, that may be true that that's what they are, but that's not what the word means. We all know that a word is, word's meaning is determined by its context, by its usage. And so it's always important to look at the context in order to determine what a word means. And we all have these wonderful little sayings to remind us of the importance of context, such as when you take the text out of context, you're left with a con. And that's what happens in a lot of sermons, is that they take the text, the surrounding context, and they take the text out of it, and then they can make that verse say whatever you want it to mean. Some of you may have had an interesting challenge by an unbeliever that you've been witnessing to where they say, well, you can take any passage of Scripture and make it say whatever you want it to say. And there's a certain truth about that. I remember the first time I heard that was when I was a freshman in college. And the man who used that as a way to deflect any any uh, uh, witnessing based on the Scripture was a man I eventually led to the Lord about 30 years after that. But that is a kind of thing that will stump a lot of Christians. And you just have to remind people that, sure, you can take any statement made by anybody in any book or literature or contract, and if you take that word or phrase out of the context, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. So you have to study the context. A text without a context is a pretext. That's another little saying we have. A text without a context is a pretext. We can then use it to mean whatever we want to. Context is to biblical study or even uh, interpretation of any literature. Context is the same as the real estate concept of location. 
the value of a property, the significance or the meaning of a piece of real estate is really determined by its location or its context. So they often say in real estate that the three uh, laws of real estate are location, location, location. The three rules or laws of hermeneutics or interpretation is context, context, context. So we must understand that by the time the New Testament is written, Greek had changed a good bit. Greek had morphed. It was now something called Koine Greek or Common Greek. Words had a long history, but as you study that history, you would see a lot of different meaning. In pre-classical Greek, Greeks had different uh, dialects. You had Ionic Greek, you had Attic Greek, you had uh, Boeotian Greek, you had various different Greek uh, dialects taught in different areas and different regions. But by the time Alexander the Great came along in the 3rd century, as the unification to Greece came about, the language changed and merged together so that it became known as Koine or Common Greek. Following Alexander the Great and his expansion and conquest throughout the Middle East, Koine Greek became the lingua franca or the common language in the eastern part of the Mediterranean. When you get into the first century, it is Koine Greek that is the common language spoken in the eastern half of the of the Roman Empire. So there's a rich heritage of literature, and as you study that literature, you see what a word means by its usage and not by looking at uh, at its history or looking at the uh, at the etymology of the word. And there, there have been a lot of, of uh, very entertaining sermons uh, based on these etymological fallacies or root fallacies. So ecclesia has to do with not the called out ones. That will preach well, but it's preaching erroneously. It has to do uh, with an, an assembly. So we have to look at this, and I wanted to say a little bit about this etymological error uh, that comes along. Uh, when Often when we look at a Greek word, uh, you'll hear me break a word down, and there's nothing wrong with doing etymology, but that is not the final word in defining uh, the meaning of a word. That's not the final, uh, final conclusion. So words are often made of compounds. And so when we look at a word, even though it has a part of the word means one thing and another part of the word uh, means something else. When you put them together, the meaning or the actual usage of the word is something that goes far beyond the um, the basic etymology. Uh, for example, you know what a house is. You know what a boat is. You can put those two words together, and you have a new compound word called a houseboat. Now, a houseboat is pretty much the sum of its parts. It's a boat that has been transformed into a house. But then um, we could take a look at another similar word, housewife. And a housewife is another term that sounds similar to houseboat, but a wife is not something that's been transformed into a house. A uh, housewife is a completely different concept that goes way beyond uh, the sum of the parts. For example, a housewife describes 
a woman, a wife who is the one who focuses on the administration of the house. It defines or describes a woman whose primary mission is the management and the stewardship of a home. She is a mother. She has uh, parental responsibilities for her children. She also is often the financial secretary managing the financial resources in the home. She is the logistics director making sure there are plenty of supplies, plenty of food, uh, everything that's needed in order for the house to run smoothly. She is the educator because often the the father may not be at home even though he has ultimate responsibility for the education and the spiritual leadership of the the home. Often he's not there all the time. She's the one who is there. She's right there when the kids misbehave, so they need to be corrected immediately. So she is the disciplinarian. She is the educator. She's the administrator. She has to plan the meals, so she becomes the nutritionist. And she is often uh, the nurse when there are injuries. She is the one who binds up their little scrapes and cuts and bruises and often, if necessary, is the one who runs them to the emergency room if there's a more serious problem. She is the psychologist to help them uh, help the children understand uh, how to relate to people and what's going on when they feel sad or sorrowful or depressed or something of that nature. And she, so she is to teach them and instruct them in the word as to how to face and handle those particular problems. She's the human resource director. And above and beyond all of that, she is to be a loving wife to her husband. So a housewife is much more than just the compound of those two words. Another word that is uh, fun to use as an illustration of this is the word butterfly. The word butterfly has nothing to do with butter. It does have to do with an insect that is flying. And, in fact, if you trace the etymology, and I've looked this up in a couple of etymological dictionaries that I have, uh, the word was simply coined to describe uh, the beauty of the flight of this animal. But the origins of the word are in the distant past. The etymology goes to different languages of this and that and the other thing. But no one knows where it originated. An even more obscure connection might be found in the word butterscotch. It's not a mixture of butter and scotch. I know that probably came as a first connection in some people's minds. It has nothing to do with scotch whiskey. But actually the word scotch is a verb going back to the 18th century that talks about uh, rendering something harmless. But um, butterscotch does not render butter harmless. Again, no one quite knows the origin of that word. Some thinks it may be the idea of heating up butter and making a candy out of it uh, originated in Scotland, but no one, no one knows at all. So we have to be careful with words. Ecclesia is a word that is used to refer to a different kinds of congregations or assemblies of people. In the Old Testament, and here we have a dictionary called the LEH Dictionary. That's a lot easier than referring to the last names of the editors, Johann Lust, Eric Einekel, and Katrin Hausby. So we'll just call it LEH. LEH is the standard dictionary for 
the understanding the Greek that is used in the Septuagint. And so the LEH dis- defines uh, ecclesia in the Old Testament as an assembly in the political sense. And it refers to a couple of intertestamental books in the Apocrypha, the book of Judith 6.16 and Sirach 26.5, and notes that it in, in that intertestamental literature, it often alternates with the word synagogue. So there they're pointing out that this is a word that was often used uh, as a synonym for synagogue. It's used as a, to refer to the assembly of the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4.10, where it is in a verb form and uh, translated as assemble the people or gather the people. So just a generic word for assembly, gathering, or collecting people together. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, we read, one of, the, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. And uh, I think older translations may have called that the congregation, but it's the assembly. So when the people are coming together to worship, this is a person who would not be allowed into the, into the temple. Uh, even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, why would that be? Well, one of illegitimate birth it would be one who was the product of an illegitimate sexual union between a man and a woman, and thus this was an attack. Uh, this was designed to prevent uh, these kinds of relationships, which were attacks on the divine institution of marriage. Marriage and family is the second and third divine institutions are the foundation for the uh, health of a nation. And so this is a, a, a penalty that would come to the offspring of an illegitimate union like that. The Old Testament never uses the term ecclesia as a reference to the future New Testament church. The New Testament church is completely absent from the Old Testament. The closest the Old Testament ever comes to indicating something in the future is prophecy related to the coming of the Gentiles to God, the future blessing of God upon the Gentiles. The Greek word in the New Testament is used 114 times, but it is not always used in a technical sense for the church. For example, it's used as a synonym for the synagogue in Matthew 18:17. It's used as a reference to the Old Testament assembly of Israel in Acts 7:38, which is Stephen's speech when he refers back to the assembly of Israelites before Moses in Acts 7:38. And in Acts 19.32, it's used, it's usually translated assembly, but if you look at the context, it is this mob, this riot of people that takes place when Paul is discovered at the temple. And so there it refers to an unruly mob that is uh, seeking uh, Paul's life. So the word ecclesia is, has to be looked at in terms of context uh, to see if it is referring to a church. And even then, we it has different meanings. First of all, ecclesia refers to non-specific or generic local church assemblies, and we have two examples here from First Corinthians. First Corinthians eleven eighteen says, "For first of all, when you come together as a church." 
So it's not talking about a specific church. It's just saying when people come together as a church. So you can come together, but not as a church. You can come together as a church, and this would be emphasizing coming together for a meeting of believers for the purpose of the study of God's Word and the worship of God. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, uh, verse 4, we have, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies uh, edifies the church. So here it is also a generic church, just any, any church, any meeting of believers. And, of course, when I say meeting of believers, I know that in almost any assembly of church for worship, there are going to be unbelievers present. But generally, the meeting of the church would be involving, uh, involving believers. So we have uh, this generic use. The second use is meeting in a house. For worship, and these house churches were common in the early church. But as more and more believers came to be uh, came to be present, they would find other places to meet. For example, Paul in Ephesus met in the school of Tyrannus. So Christians early on would meet in a house for worship. We have a reference in Philemon two to the church in Philemon's house. In Colossians four fifteen. Uh, there's a reference to ver- a greeting to various brethren, one brethren, one whose name was Nymphus, and the church that met in his house. A third use of the word church, uh, Paul uses it to describe Christians that met for worship in a particular city or geographical area. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1, one, he talks about the church of the Thessalonians. So he is talking there. I could be talking about a single assembly, or he could be talking about uh, using church in a collective sense for all of the different groups in Thessalonica that met. We have to be careful with this because there are some erroneous teaching out there which argues that there was only one church in each location. So the word church can have uh, this collective sense as well to the body of Christ of the in, in Thessalonica or uh, in or excuse me Thessalonica. Romans 16:1. I uh, commend you to uh, to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria. So this is talking about a uh, specific uh, specific uh, house church or excuse me a specific church in a geographical area. Fourth. Paul used the plural word churches to refer to a group of churches in a particular region, not necessarily in a particular city. For example, in Galatians 1-2, the churches of Galatia. Galatia was a Roman province in in what today would be south-central Turkey, the area where Paul went on his first missionary journey, uh, the area around Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, and Antioch. Galatians one twenty two, he speaks about the churches of Judea. This would be churches other than the church, the churches, the church in Jerusalem. This would be describing the various different churches and assemblies that were meeting around Judea. And in First Thessalonians uh, two fourteen, we have the churches of God. All churches are churches of God, even if they are composed. Of as well as unbelievers. And then we have the expression church of God 
used in a variety of passages, for example, in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former contact in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God. That is a term he uses to represent just any believers because he was hostile to all believers and to all Christians to destroy them. So there are three observations that we can take from looking at all of these passages. First of all, there is a universal body of Christ, a non-visible entity called the church, which includes all believers, both those who have gone to be with the Lord as well as those who are still alive. The word church is also used, secondly, to refer to assemblies, which include some some unbelievers. These are visible assemblies. For example, West Houston Bible Church at times, we have unbelievers who are present. Uh, it just uh, You go to a very large church, uh, you may have a number of unbelievers present. That's why it's always important to explain the gospel, either in the message or in a closing prayer, because you never know if there's an unbeliever there. I remember hearing pastors as I as I grew up that as they were teaching through a book study, sometimes you would note that, wow, we spent most of the evening uh, under, uh, learning more about the gospel. And that would be because the pastor noted that there were some strangers there or he knew for a fact that there were some unbelievers there. And so he used that opportunity to witness to them uh, from the pulpit. Uh, I know that one of the uh, most difficult funeral messages that I have ever uh, prepared for and given was my dad's memorial service. And it wasn't because it was a memorial memorial service for my dad. It was because I knew uh, six or seven of my close, unsaved Jewish friends were going to be here, and I would have about 30 or 40 uninterrupted minutes to make the gospel clear. And so it was uh, without letting them know that I was witnessing to them. Now, that was the real catch, but um, I made it very clear, and I think the point was was well taken. I don't think any of them became believers, but they have a clear understanding of the gospel. So church refers to local, visible assemblies that include both believers and unbelievers. And then third, church is never used of a building. Isn't that interesting? We often say, well, you know, the church on the corner, and we're talking about the building, but that is never a way that the word church or ecclesia is used in the New Testament. Okay, that helps us to understand the word church. The third thing we need to talk about is the uh, extent of the church. When did the church begin and how long will it last? Well, the church began on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. Now, some people think Christ died in 30 or 31, but I believe he died in 33. I think that fits the context best. But on that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles there at the temple, that is when the church began. It is marked by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it will continue until the Lord returns in the air for his church at the rapture in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now, it seems like uh, recently I've been asked a couple of questions. So I know that when I get asked a couple of questions that there are more that may uh, be interested. 
but I haven't had questions on this in a long time, and there are some that uh, have asked me about a group called hyper-dispensationalists or ultra-dispensationalists. The word that I'm most familiar with and have heard most of my life is hyper-dispensationalist. Dr. Charles Ryrie in his book on dispensationalism uses the word ultra-dispensationalist. Now, there are two different kinds of these hyper- or ultra-dispensationalists. The most extreme group is a group that believes that the church doesn't begin until after Acts 28. And this uh, one of the foremost teachers here was a man named Ethelbert Bullinger, and uh, uh, he's famous for having written an, uh, about a three-inch thick tome on the figures of speech used in the Bible. But there are several problems with uh, that particular view that the church doesn't begin until later, one of which is that uh, most of the New Testament epistles are written before Acts 28, and they refer to the church in Thessalonica, the church in uh, Galatia, which was early. They use the term church, uh, which uh, the term church is used several times in the book of Acts, uh, prior to even Acts chapter 9. And so this is a, uh, this is a problem for the uh, for the hyper-dispensationalists. And there's also a second group that comes along, and that second group that comes along is a more moderate group, and they will say that the beginning of the church is either in Acts 9, which is, which is when Paul is saved, or they will say it occurs in Acts chapter uh, 10 when Peter goes to the Gentiles officially, or Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. And so the problem with this is uh, is really a couple of different things. Uh, the problem with this is still the fact that the word church is used uh, twice in early Acts, before Acts 9, before Acts 10, before Acts 15, to refer to the existing church in Acts 5.11. Uh, Luke writes, So great fear came upon all the church. Uh, this is when a persecution arose uh, early on in Acts. Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And in Acts chapter 8, uh, following the stoning of Stephen, Luke writes, Now Saul, who was standing at the edge of the crowd, that's Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul, now Saul was consenting to his death, at Stephen's death. At the time, a great at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. So the scripture is clearly talking about this, and that 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 the church already exists before Acts nine, before Acts ten, before Acts eleven. Now, what is it that really defines the church? That's what's so important. In the upper room, as Jesus is meeting with his disciples, having already sent Judas away, he's talking to them as believers. He, he told his disciples, uh, first of all, he said, In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Uh, that day is talking about when, uh, when the church began. And that's in John chapter 14, verse 20. The idea there is that the you and me relationship is that of being in the body of Christ. When he says, you will be in me, 
uh, that is a unique relationship that we have in Christ, then we are identified with him and placed in the body of Christ, and that started on the day uh, day of Pentecost. And we know that because it's related to the coming of the Holy Spirit from John chapter 14, same chapter, verse 17, talks about the Holy Spirit would come and be in them. And that occurred in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 2. If you remember when we have studied through the book of Acts, that just before Jesus left to ascend to heaven, he told the disciples, wait here in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, we have the coming of the Spirit. It is that action of the Spirit coming upon them that is identified as the baptism uh, by the Holy Spirit. And this is what brings all together Jew and Gentile into the body of Christ. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, Paul talks about the fact that we are one in Christ. And then in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, uh, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that's one of his earliest epistles, so that is written uh, long before the end of Acts. Uh, it is also a, a, an epistle written to deal with the problem of the Judaizers who are also uh, emphasizing that circumcision was necessary in order to have uh, salvation and in order to be uh, be sanctified. So we f- see from these verses, like Acts 5.11, Acts 8.1, which I have on the screen, plus Acts 8.3, Saul made havoc of the church. Acts 9.31, uh, the, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. This is uh, after Paul is saved, but before he began his his ministry. Fourth point, the universal church is composed of all believers during this period from Pentecost, Acts 2-4, until the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4-16-17. So it begins on Pentecost, not later on. Uh, Hyper-dispensationalism is always divisive. It is always a problem because they just don't have any any uh, any way to, to defend their position and they often use some extremely convoluted arguments. The fifth point is that in Ephesians, Paul always uses the word ecclesia to refer only to the universal church, not to a local church, but only to the universal church, the body of Christ. And another term for universal church is the term Catholic church, not Roman Catholic church, but Catholic church. The word Catholic just means universal. Uh, it became the Roman Catholic Church once the Bishop of Rome became the overarching authority for all of the churches, and that administratively occurred with Gregory the Great around 600. But you don't have distinctive uh, the distinctive doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church until some centuries later. So it all depends on who you're reading as to where they mark the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, but we're all members of the universal church, the Catholic Church. Sixth, it's at Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem that we see the recognition of Jew and Gentile as equal in the body of Christ. 
The problem that they were addressing was what is mentioned in Acts 15.5. We'll come back and talk about this more next time. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them. So they're clearly believers, but then they've imported afterward this, this legalism that was necessary for Gentiles to also be circumcised. That was the reason the council was meeting. And then at the conclusion in Acts 15, 15 through 17, uh, uh, James stands up and says, With this is the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos 9, 11, and 12. After this, that really in the context that's after the tribulation, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, a term for the house of David and the kingship of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind will seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And the reason that's quoted is because it was used to affirm the fact that the Old Testament clearly taught that God was going to save Gentiles and that Gentiles would would be included uh, in heaven. So that gives us our introduction to the church, and then next time we'll come back and begin working through the exegesis of of, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to come to this broad understanding of this distinctive organism created by you, the church, and what we have in the church and who we are as members of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church, as this remarkable work of art, this masterpiece. Father, we pray for those who are unsaved, those who do not know do not know how to be saved, that they would come to understand that from what we have talked about today, that you sent your Son Christ to die on the cross for our sins, and that by only believing in him, only believing only in him. So he alone is the object of our faith, and it's only faith that saves. It is Christ who saves. Faith is the means by which we appropriate that salvation. And God, in his grace, then justifies us and makes us alive together in him. Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone who is not saved, that Jesus is the only Savior. As he said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to you except by him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.